0: If you'll turn in your Bibles to First Samuel chapter six, and as you turn there, I want to invite you to come back this evening as we are transitioning back into a little bit more of a normal schedule here. We're starting back with some of our Sunday night activities, and so uh, this evening is a reminder uh, for our deacons. We have a deacons' meeting at five, and then we're having a prayer gathering at six thirty. And this is a time just for us to come together as a church family. Uh, we'll sing a couple of hymns together, and we'll just pray. And there is much for us to pray for as we consider all that's going on in our world today, as we consider what we see on our evening news, issues with COVID, with politics, as we think about uh, just our local context. We're going to be praying uh, for our school administrators, praying for our teachers, praying for our kids and our students. And so that's going to be tonight at 630, and we're going to be doing that in the church sanctuary. And so we hope you can join us at 630 for that prayer gathering tonight. As we come to First Samuel chapter 6... Uh, We come to a place where we see uh, these are dark days for God's people. If you've been with us through our study so far, 1 Samuel, you know this was during the period of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we see a godlessness among the people of God. And so the people aren't trusting God, they're not following God, they're just doing what they feel is right Uh, We see this was a time of great corruption among those who were supposed to be leading God's people. So that you have uh, the priests who were Eli's sons, referred to as Eli's worthless sons, Phinehas and Hophni. And in their worthlessness and their sin against God, we see God strikes them down for their sin. Uh, But not just them, we see many of God's people have died in battle as they've gone to fight against the Philistines, who were the enemies of God's people. Uh, first, 4,000 died, then 30,000 died, and then in the midst of all that, the people have lost the ark of God. Uh, they brought the ark into battle as kind of this superstitious ploy to harness the power of God. Uh, but we see here God's judgment on them and on the Philistines as the Philistines capture the ark. As we see the name of Phineas' son, Ichabod, the glory departing from Israel. It's just a dark day among God's people. But we're reminded in the scripture that when we see dark days like this, that God is still at work and God's plans will not be thwarted. And he is leading his people towards his provision for them, ultimately towards the big picture of the scripture, which points to Jesus Christ, our Messiah, But to get there, they're going to have to experience these dark days first. And so this darkness continues as the Philistines have captured the ark and God's brought this great plague among the people, that there's tumors all over them, that there's mice that have come and plagued their land and they've eaten their grain. And now the Philistines just want to get rid of this ark with the thought that somehow they can just get rid of God's wrath. But we find that they can't get rid of God's wrath on their own. God's wrath uh, will be dealt with ultimately on the cross of Jesus. But we're going to read today First Samuel 6 down through 7 verse 2. And there's a lot of details here about what's taking place among the Philistines. But I hope you see in these details this big picture of the holiness of our God. And so out of reverence for our holy God, if you would stand as I read his word for us. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 6, 1 through 7, 2. And this is what God's holy word says. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God Of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then... Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm." But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened only by coincidence. The men did so. They took the two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images and their tumors. The cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. Along one highway, lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up wood of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offerings to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck... Some of the men of Beth because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Amminadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, as we consider these words this morning, there are... Unfamiliar names and unfamiliar places. There are golden images of tumors and mice. There are sacrifices of cows, and a cart is cut up and burned to sacrifice them on there. There's so much here that can seem foreign and and distant to us. But Lord, help us to see how this Your Word applies to us today. Help us to see how we learn in 1 Samuel 6 about your holiness and about our sin and about our need for a Redeemer. And we ask this in our Redeemer's name. Amen. You may be seated. 2020 is going by quickly. For some of us, you may feel that it's going by very slowly. But I was in a store the other day and saw a sign that said, you know, X number of days until Christmas. And I thought, my goodness, it's going by fast. But before you know it, we're coming into September. We'll be into the holidays and you'll see those Little red kettles out in front of Walmart and out in front of stores, those Salvation Army bell ringers. And, and most of you are familiar with the Salvation Army and, and these ringing of bells. It's a way to collect money for this organization that for most of us we just look to as one that helps out with those who are homeless, needing shelter, needing food. But most of us don't know the rich history of this organization. The Salvation Army actually goes back to the 1800s. It was founded by a Methodist preacher named William Booth in 1865. And it was a Salvation Army. Its distinct goal was to share the gospel with the outcast of that day. And so Booth would lead his army into the places where there would be morphine addicts and alcoholics and undesirables. And he would preach to them the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And he would see many of them converted to faith in Christ. In fact, so many were converted that it began to have an effect on the economy. Bars started to close. People started to lose business. And so there was a pushback against the Salvation Army. And a group formed a different army that you may be less familiar with. They called it the Skeleton Army. The Skeleton Army's purpose was to disrupt the activity of the Salvation Army. And so people would gather together and wherever the Salvation Army was going to be in preaching the gospel, they would come and they would throw rotten food at them and they would shout out obscenities. They would pass out flyers with skulls and crossbones and sometimes would have paintings depicting Satan as part of their marches. They wanted to do whatever they could to disrupt this preaching of the gospel. In fact, they, they turned violent at times. Just in one year, in 1889, the Skeleton Army assaulted 669 Salvation Army members as they gathered, including over 250 women. When you think about that for a moment and consider, why why would people be so angry about a group that was leading people out of a life of sin and wickedness, that was leading them on this path of walking by faith? Why would they hate this message so much? Of course we find the answer to that in the scripture where we read in John chapter 3 beginning in verse 19 and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed what we're reminded of in John chapter 3 what we're reminded of in the history of the Salvation Army, what we're reminded of when we turn on our evening news, is that darkness hates the light. And what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is that the light of God is shining on the darkness of the land. These are dark days for the people of Israel. These are dark days for the Philistines. But but God's glory has come. There's this, this picture of His glory in the ark. But what we see here is that rather than respond to the light, people love their darkness. Rather respond than respond to repentance and faith, the people just want the glory of God gone. They don't want it around them. It reminds us of the condition of man's heart of our sinfulness. And how God's holiness exposes our sinfulness. Which brings us to that first point there in your outline. The holiness of God exposes our Sinfulness. We find now in chapter 6 that the ark of God has now been among the Philistines for about seven months. And during this time, God has brought a plague against them. We talked about this last week in the Hebrew translation of that word tumors and some of the very awful inflictions this was bringing against the Philistine people. And so they want to get rid of it. And so they think, well, if we just get rid of the ark, we'll get rid of the wrath. And so they move it from city to city to city. But what happens? God's wrath remains on them. And so they finally come to the conclusion that they're going to get rid of the ark entirely and send it back to the Israelites. And there's a picture here of God defending his own glory. That The people had carried the ark into battle thinking they could harness the power of God only to find that God's power could be harnessed by no man. And so now the ark's in the hands of God's enemies. But God won't have one Hebrew's hand involved in bringing his ark back to where it belongs with his people. He'll defend his own glory and he'll bring the ark back in his own power. And the Philistines here, they they seem to be getting a glimpse and an understanding of this. We read here that they consult their priest and their diviners. So these would have been priests of their false god, Dagon. If you remember that from uh, when we studied that in the scripture, they they had that temple of Dagon. And Dagon was believed to be this uh, god of grain and of the harvest. And so they would likely make sacrifices to Dagon, hoping they would have a good crop. And we have that picture there of that idol of Dagon that just would fall down before the ark of the Lord and once fell and its head and its hands were removed. The diviners were people among the Philistines who practiced witchcraft. They sought to manipulate the spiritual world around them through spells, through looking for signs and omens. Some attempted to read fortunes or communicate with the dead. And so the Philistines call together these leaders, these spiritual advisors, and they come up with a plan. And the plan is is that they have to take the ark back to Israel and they have to include some type of offering with the ark. And then they propose a question that's a very good question to ask. Verse 6, they said, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? That's a great question seems the Philistines here, they understand a little bit of their biblical history. They've heard the stories of how God led his people from Egypt and led them to the promised land. They understand and they've heard how God is a God who is holy and he brought his wrath against the Egyptians and all of these plagues. And they recognize now this same God is bringing plagues against them. And they ask this question that we should all ask. Why are you hardening your hearts against this God? And yet in asking this question, they still don't repent and don't turn to trust in God. They call their attention to the Egyptians, but they seem to miss out on what the great sin of the Egyptians was. When you think about what the Egyptians did to God's people, and certainly it was sin that they enslaved God's people and they treated them harshly, but the greatest sin there is the way they responded to God. They didn't worship the one true God. They worshiped all these false gods of their land. And when exposed to the one true God, they refused to turn from worshiping all these false gods. And ultimately, God destroyed them. And now the Philistines will experience the same fate over time as the Egyptians. Because the holiness of God and the wrath of God will not be appeased. By simply getting spiritual advice and removing the ark. Now what the holiness of God is doing among the Philistines is it's exposing their false gods and their false worship. They don't need to get rid of the ark. They need to get rid of their sin. They need to turn and repent. But they think if we just get rid of this reminder, if we just get rid of this object, then we'll be okay. Okay. If we can somehow remove the wrath of God from us, we'll be okay. And this doesn't work for them, and it doesn't work for us today. See, we live in a day and an age where people think if they can just get rid of things, then it will be okay. And so we come to God's Word, and we find God's Word exposes our sin. And so what is our flesh response to that? It's, well, I'm just not going to read those parts of God's Word that make me uncomfortable. Or if there's things here that go against how I want to live and what I want to believe, I'll just skip over those parts. Or or maybe those aren't really parts. Maybe that's not what God really said. Or it may be God's people we move away from. We see time and time again people who will come into the life of the church and be involved in the life of the church, but then when they find that their life and their sin is called out or they're uncomfortable in the presence of believers and the presence of God's word being preached, then they pull away from those things. People don't want to be in an environment where they see their sin exposed. Now that's not the way they say it. Not too long ago, I overheard a conversation between two people and they were talking about church which intrigued my snoopiness, and so I overheard as much as I could. And uh, They were talking about a, a church to go to and what church to check out. And I didn't hear names, but essentially one of the people said, well, I just don't want to go to a church that judges me. I don't want to feel judged. And so I turned and said, well, don't come to our church because we'll judge you all day long. No, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> but, but why is it that people say that? Well, what, what, what does that come from, this idea of I don't want to go somewhere that judges me? Friends, it's not so much that they're describing people looking at them in judgment. What people are often describing there is they don't want to be uncomfortable in their sin. That they want to be in a place that endorses their sin. They want to be in a place that that, uh, applauds their sin. But when the word of God is preached and when the word of God is exposited, what we see is our sin is exposed and our right response to that should be one of repentance and one of faith. But if we're not willing to repent and move away from our sin, well, then we just move away from the source of that conviction. We want to move away from the Word and move away from God's people. Because God's holiness, it exposes our sinfulness. And it also shows us, point two, that we rightly deserve the wrath of God for our sin. And so things just get worse here for the Philistines. These priests and diviners, they tell them, well... uh, you got a few things right here. You don't want to be like the Egyptians. You don't want to harden your heart like Pharaoh. But they're still not quite understanding that they have offended a holy God. Now, they seem to get it in part because they talk about making an offering. They have this plan. They're going to send back the ark. They're going to include a a guilt offering. They're going to make golden tumors and golden mice. Again, God's judgment had come upon them through plagues. And so it seems to be their idea here and their idol worship that they were such a part of was that, well, we have to make some physical object that represents what God's done to us. And so they make golden tumors because God has struck them with tumors and killed so many of them. They make golden mice because even though we haven't seen this before in 1 Samuel, it appears there's been some plague of mice Which these things kind of connect when you consider their chief god was Dagon, which was this god of agriculture, this god of the harvest. That God in his judgment on their false god brings this plague of mice to within eat their harvest and eat their grain. But rather than turning and repenting and trusting in this god, will they continue in their idol worship, their false god worship, and they just make these false idols out of gold thinking somehow that's going to appease god? We see here this rabbit foot religion that we've seen among the Hebrews is also alive and well among the Philistines. That they think that they're going to get rid of God's wrath. By offering these guilt offerings. And then their plan seems to get a little bit more bizarre to us. They want to get two milk cows. And these cows would have been cows that were essentially nursing calves. And so their idea is well we're going to take these calves away from their mamas. And the natural result there would be the mamas would want to go back to the calves. So this must be a work of God if these mamas don't go back to the calves. And they go on this road that we send them on. And so again, there's no people leading them. They just put these milk cows with this cart, and on the cart they put the ark, and then beside the ark they put these these golden idols, these mice and tumors, and and sure enough, it goes on its way towards the people of Israel. And so they're using this rabbit foot religion, thinking somehow this is going to appease God, and we're going to be off the hook, and we're going to be okay. They weren't going to be okay, And as we'll read more about the Philistines in the future, we'll find that God's wrath is still against them, that they are still the enemies of God's people. And they rightly deserve that wrath for their sins. And friends, we rightly deserve that wrath as well. But you think about how we respond and how people often respond when we start talking about the wrath of God in the scripture. I've heard people many times say to me, well, God's wrath, that's... That's just the God of the Old Testament. I I like the God of the New Testament. Had someone challenge me here at this church multiple times. Well, you need to preach from the New Testament more because we need to hear more about the New Testament God. Friends, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. We don't believe in two different gods. We believe in one God and we see this God in all his glory from the beginning of his word to the end of his word. We can't celebrate what we see in the New Testament if we don't properly understand what we see in the Old Testament. And if we think for a second that we don't see the wrath of God in the New Testament, then friends, we're not reading the New Testament. We read in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. This is the picture of the wrath of God. It is what we have earned. It is what we deserve. This week, this Friday, was a significant day in my house because two of my kids got paychecks. And if you're a parent, you know what a significant day that is. Uh, our daughter Vivian is at Boyce College in Louisville now, and she just started a new job at Chick-fil-A, and she got her first Chick-fil-A paycheck. And I asked her, I'm like, was it wrapped up in a Chick-fil-A sandwich? And, yeah. You know. That'd be really good, but uh, she gets really cheap Chick-fil-A sandwiches. But anyways, she, she got that paycheck, and she was so proud of that paycheck. Uh, Anna Claire, uh, the movie theater's opened back up, and she's working there, and she, she got her first post-COVID or whatever we want to call this time we're in uh, paycheck. She was proud of that paycheck. We're, we're proud of that. Why? Because we've earned it. it. It's a wage, and we've earned it. And a wage is something we are deserving of, Because we've done the work to earn the wage. So here's the work, here's the wage. We earned it, we got it. And that's a good thing when we think about our work and our jobs. But the scripture says we've got another wage coming to us. And it's the wage of sin. And it says the wage of sin is death. And what that means, friends, is that what you and I deserve, what we have earned for our sin is the wrath of God rightly upon us. We deserve it. And if you somehow believe this morning that you don't deserve God's wrath, then, friend, you don't understand the Scripture. And you have been blinded by the foolishness of this world. Because what we see in 1 Samuel 6 is what we see throughout the Word of God. That our hearts rebel against a holy God and we rightly deserve God's wrath for our sin. But it gets worse. (laughs) Because as we continue to study this passage, we see point three. Our sacrifices can appease God's wrath. We deserve this wage and God will not be paid off. And we see that very clearly in this passage. The Philistines think, we're just going to buy off God's wrath with some gold. (laughs) Where well, we're going to send these two milk cows and this cart and some gold, and, and then we'll be right with this God, and we could go back to worshiping our false God. God won't be paid off, and the Philistines are going to learn that as we continue to hear their story in the scripture. But it's not just their sin we see here, we also see the sin of the Hebrews. Remember how the ark got to the Philistines' hands, into their hands in the first place? That this was the sin of the Hebrew people who thought well, we've been defeated in battle. And so if we just somehow can harness the power of God. They, they turned the ark of God into an idol. They, they thought they could harness the power of God. And so they brought this ark into battle. Rather than pleading with the Lord for victory. They thought well we'll just take the ark with this, this box covered in gold. That's going to do what we need it to do. And they sinned against God and God struck down 34 thousand of them but now more are going to die verse 13 tells us the ark returns to the israelites and they rejoice but notice what they do that they take the cart that it's on and they chop up the wood and they sacrifice the cows and then on a stone there they place the ark but do you notice what else they do They they take that Box, they take those golden idols that the Philistines, these pagans, had sent with the ark as a guilt offering, and they take these, these idols, this really this worship attributed to false gods, and they put it right there beside the ark. And God's not pleased with this. And so as they do this, we see their, their heart issues still the same. They're, they're still making an idol out of the ark of God. And now they're including with the ark of God these objects from these pagan people. We see their rabbit foot religion is still at work and God is not pleased. And now his judgment is going to fall against his people again. Verse 19, he kills more of them. Scripture says he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. English Standard Version that I preached from says seventy men. If you've got the King James this morning, it probably says fifty thousand seventy men. There's a little difference. Seventy fifty thousand seventy. That the Hebrew is a bit confusing here. It actually reads seventy men, fifty thousand men, and and people debate what exactly is being said there. And so where many have kind of landed is that that's five people out of a thousand, which brings us up to seventy. That there were probably about fourteen thousand people here, but it could have been it was a much larger number. Whatever the number you interpret that to be, a lot of people die. And why did they die? Because, friends, what we see in 1 Samuel 6 is what we see throughout God's Word. And it's what we need to understand today in the life of our church that God will not share His glory with anyone or anything else, even His own ark. He's not going to share His glory with a king, He's not going to share His glory with a people. He's not going to share His glory with a nation. He's not going to share His glory with a flag. He's not going to share His glory with anyone or with anything. His glory is His alone and He alone is worthy of our worship. The Hebrews neglected to remember this when they faced the wrath of God. Which brought them to a very important question and it's one I want us to consider today. Verse 20 As they look now at even more men dying, they ask this question Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I mean, that's really the question for the ages, isn't it? Who is able to stand before this holy God? The scripture answers this question, and it resoundingly says, The wicked cannot. The psalmist in Psalm 1 says the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So we we need to push back beyond our cultural misunderstandings of God that somehow we're we're all kind of messed up. but, but, But if our good outweighs our bad, that maybe we're able to stand in the presence of a holy God. No, in our sin, none of us, none of us deserve to stand before God in his holiness. None, not even one, we read in Romans, is good and is righteous. We've all sinned, and therefore none of us can stand. So where can we find hope? And that brings us to our last point, what I want to leave us with this morning. And this is why we're reminded that Jesus is our only hope. Because Jesus is the only one who can stand before a holy God, because Jesus is without sin. Truly God and truly man. And I believe that's the point of 1 Samuel uh, chapter 6. And I believe that's the point of the whole Old Testament. And I believe that's the point of the whole New Testament. The whole scripture speaks to this. That Jesus is the one who is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Not you and not me. But he is worthy. We're reminded here that a sacrifice is required for our sin but our sacrifices cannot save us. This is why we think of King David, who we'll learn of in our study of 1st and 2 Samuel. And we think about his great sin against the Lord and how he sinned with Bathsheba. And then that sin of adultery led to murder and so many other things. And when he he is exposed and when he is convicted of his sin, we read about his response to that in Psalm 51, where he just cries out to God and he repents. But in that moment, consider what he says about these sacrifices. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 16, speaking of God. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Here's David, the king, who can bring before God thousands of sacrifices. He can bring a whole lot more than golden tumors and golden mice and two milk cows. He could bring everything from the land before God. He says, I would do it if that's what was required. But no, he says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, David gets to the heart of the issue, which is the heart itself. And he helps us to see the problem for the Israelites and the problem for the Philistines and the problem for so many of us today is we think that somehow we can appease this wrath of God with our hands and we can't. We need our heart to change. We need a new heart. And the good news of the gospel is is that's what Jesus gives us. He says if we will confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved and he gives us a new heart one that can then rightly approach God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to understand, friends, that God can change anyone who comes to him in this way. We read at the end here, First Samuel in our passage this morning, chapter 7, verse 2, that a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So we don't see this immediate heart change among the people, and yet that's what they needed. And these were dark days. And God was about to do a great work, but that work required a changed heart. And friends, as we look around our world today, we live in dark days as well. And what we need today more than any other day is we need to see hearts changed. We need to see the gospel of Jesus changed. Go into the heart of man and radically change him from the inside out. That's what we need and that's what the gospel offers. And there's none who's gone so far that God cannot save them. And so when we see the darkness raging against the light, let that be a reminder to us that God can reach into that darkness and he can pull out of it any man, woman, or child that he chooses to to save them. It's what he does today. It's what he did and what we'll see him do in 1 Samuel. That's what we see him do throughout history. In fact, as we consider the story I started with, that skeleton army, it's what he did even then. There was a man named Charles Jeffries who was one of the leaders of that skeleton army in the 1800s. And he was known as being one of the more brutal and vicious attackers of those who proclaim the gospel. And so as the Salvation Army members would gather and share the gospel, he would lead people in just doing awful, wicked things to them to disrupt them in whatever way he could. On one particular day, he led a group of 30 skeletons to disrupt a Salvation Army meeting, but something different happened. Instead of him disrupting their meeting, God's word disrupted him. Because the first time his ears were open to hear and his eyes were open to see this truth that God was presenting through William Booth and through others. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. And Jeffreys for the first time understood that because of his sin he rightly deserved the wrath of God. And he asked that question, who, who can stand before this holy God? And that question was answered as the gospel was proclaimed. That if you will confess Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and you one day will stand before that holy God covered through the blood of Jesus. Jeffries and all 30 from that skeleton army that day were converted by the gospel of Jesus in fact he became one of the highest ranking members of the salvation army and to his dying day he traveled all over our nation sharing the truth of God's word with anyone who would listen from skeleton army to salvation army friends that's the power of the gospel it changed his life it's changed my life it's changed many of your lives and it can change the life of anyone so don't you for a second give up on sharing the gospel with others. Don't you for a second think that someone's so far gone that they can't be saved. God is still in the work of bringing people from darkness to light. So let's join him in that work. Let's share this all-important gospel and let's trust him for the results. If you would pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word and just the reminder here, Lord, in 1 Samuel 6 that during a dark day, Filled with pagan worship and idolatry. You were still at work. And Lord, you were about to do a great work pointing people towards Christ the Messiah. Lord, we look around our world today and many of us are overwhelmed with the darkness that we see. And yet, Lord, remind us today that you're still at work. You're bringing people out of that darkness into the light. Lord, maybe there's some folks here this morning. We were still in that darkness. Uh, maybe there's someone here this morning who, who whose mind is still conformed to the foolishness of this world, and who's yet to call out to Christ as Lord. Father, would you do that work in their life today? Would you bring them from darkness to light? Would you help them to understand the truth of your word that all have sinned and fall short of your glory and the wages of sin is death, that we rightly deserve your wrath for our sin, but you demonstrate your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Would you help them to see the glorious truth, Lord, that if we will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And, Lord, that all-important reminder from Romans 10, 13, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. May we call on the name of the Lord today. And, Father, I pray for people in our lives, friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, people that we know and we look at as just being in darkness. We, we've talked to them about the gospel, and yet it seems it's had little effect. Lord, would you do what you, only you can do? Would you bring them out of darkness into light? We will glorify you as, we, as you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand together and let's sing.